I felt like, oh, this is what I have to do to prove myself because we've moved from this different country. We just start, we're starting from scratch. We're starting from a baseline with, we don't know anyone here. As an immigrant, I have to work twice as hard or three times as hard as anyone else just to kind of prove my worth. That's not the case, right? And nobody's ever made me feel that, that that's just an internal thing, the pressure that you put on yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about time at the moment. My friend Stephen Smith joins me on today's podcast. I met Stephen during my MBA program in Dublin, Ireland, where he quickly became president of our class. So naturally, I call him Prez Stephen Smith. Stephen reflects on his journey after the MBA program, how he launched a new startup, the lessons he's learned since then, how he's changed his mindset around time, and how people have been generous in his career and life. Enjoy this conversation with Prez Stephen Smith. Welcome to the Become a Provider podcast, a show about how people bless and protect others and how you can do the same. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. Let's begin. I always like to start with a quick story of how the guest has provided for me. So would you allow me to uh, share a quick Stephen Smith providing for Justin Thomas story? I'm surprised you're able to find one. (laughs) Well, let me see if you remember this, because for me, this made a big difference. So we connected in 2011. I pack up my bags leave North Carolina for Dublin, Ireland, and to take on this big adventure with my wife, Amy, to do this MBA program. The first real memory that I have of you and a great story of providing is, do you remember what happened when we first entered the university and they had an activity for us as a group? Do you remember that activity? We had to uh, come together as a group and build like bamboo sticks and, and build like uh, some sort of, you know, engineer some structure and, and uh, uh, like a ball or something had to travel around the, this big hall. So it's supposed to be this team building exercise. So here we are. There's like 50 of us in this big room and we're all over the world, right? I mean, we have about half the class from Ireland and then the other half from around the world. And what I remember about that story, this is a great provider story. You recognize your leadership traits to gather people together, to get them excited. And you stand up there and I think, all right, here we go. Here's the guy that's going to be our leader. And you stand up and you say, hey, we can do this. I know we can. And I'll help us out. But my brain isn't wired for this type of engineering. So who's the engineers in this class? <laughs> I, I remember that moment because I felt like, oh, here's a guy in his element and totally secure with his strengths and weaknesses. What do you recall from that moment? <laughs> I've forgotten saying, saying that, but, you know, it, it's, it sounds uh, like something I would say. You should see me attempt to put IKEA furniture together. It's a disaster. I just can't seem to, to, to do it, right? It, it's even a simple set of instructions. I will end up with something attached on the wrong way. And then I lose patience with it, right? And, and uh, I just say, right, I'm not taking it apart again. It's going up. I don't care if it's missing a shelf. I don't care if the door isn't put on properly. It's just it has to do. So, yeah, that's what's sound like me, all right. But I do remember that 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 time, uh, that day. I remember at the end when we were starting to run out of time and there was touch and go whether we would make it. Rumors started to fly around the room, right, that there was only uh, one or two classes in the history of this, doing this 10 years of doing this exercise that the MBA class had failed at this. And I could see that we were going to be next, right? We were going to be the third class that had failed in 10 years at doing this activity because I was looking around going, we're not going to do it. <laughs> and then I was thinking, well, how, am I go- how are we going to... Uh, how are we going to feel, right? How are we going to, you know, start off the year where the whole day has been built up to get this structure built? Um, but luckily, we, we managed to pull it off at the last minute. It was a very enjoyable experience, um, I have to say. And you can really see something simple like that. You can definitely see how different people work under pressure. That day, really, I learned a lot about the 
the people that that were going to be my colleagues or our colleagues for the rest of the year, right? Very interesting. And that was the start of our friendship. So building that random structure, seeing you up there and trying my best to throw some bamboo sticks together. And we we made it. We accomplished it. And we had a chance to to work and collaborate together for the next year in Ireland, your home turf. And you got to welcome me as the visitor. One of the fun stories, too, that I like to share is as someone that was not familiar with Irish culture before living there doing the MBA program, I didn't have an appreciation for how unique the counties are within Ireland. And you're from county that always gardeners a reaction when you say you're from county Cavan, right? So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what makes Cavan unique. Oh, where do I start? Um, Cavan, yeah, it is, it, it is a unique place. So the, the joke is in our, for Irish people that Cavan people are very self-centered and they are, they don't share and they're very frugal and parsimonious with their money. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's not, I don't think that that's true. Um, I think Cavan people are very generous, but of course I'm from Cavan, so I'm biased. But you know, it, it, you would you do you certainly get a reaction when you say when somebody asks you where are you from and you say Cavan, and straight away the jokes will start. Oh, you eat your dinner in a drawer, or you peel an orange in your pocket. That kind of you know joke starts. But I think Cavan is a it's a unique place in Ireland in that the terrain and the landscape is quite unique. There's about maybe seventy thousand people that live in this county um there's 365 lakes in the county and it's, it's like a very glacier it's the terrain was very uh, formed during the the ice age but it left the ice age left these drumlins that are, they're called they're small hills so uh, the the ground is quite wet um it's not there's not you know it's not that many uh, that much arable land to to farm but it's it's a it's a very interesting county and we are very passionate about our our sport um, and our music in Cavan. i would have to say what Cavan uh, people have is a very sharp wit, a very sharp sense of humor. So there's there's almost, as you would have learned from from me, you know, we have a very strange sense of humor for, for most people in the world, right? Um, and, you know, there are almost no boundaries, right, with, with where a humor might stop or start. You know, I have friends at home who would be playing practical jokes, but the practical joke could, could take a year to set up and, and deploy. It's a very interesting, interesting place. And, and I'm from East Cavan and from parts of West Cavan, the, the dialect of English that they speak is, is can be impenetrable, I think, for outsiders. You know, I have a memory of, of inviting you to, my brother was, was is an am, a very into amateur drama and he was uh, taking part in this in this show and we brought you and uh, we invited you and Amy along to the theatre to see it. And it was about this Irish country music star back in the 70s and, and it was a recreation a reconstruction of, of his of part of his life and my brother was in it and, and I, it was very much you know it was written by a cavern a guy from cavern the cast all from cavern and they all spoke with very strong cavern accents this is i thought it was hilarious i you know my wife who's from dublin i'd say only understood probably 50 percent of the of the show one of the amusing parts for me was anytime i looked over at you and amy it was like you were looking down at the stage in utter bewilderment with what was going on. Did you understand any of it? <laughs> yeah, you're right. It felt like it was a foreign language. But it was so entertaining. I remember that play. And that was just one of the gracious invitations that you gave Amy and myself to get involved in the culture and to learn what it was like. And that's why we made the big move was to do things like that. But it was so enjoyable. We loved it. It was great. Um, and, and for me, you know, I I. Used I went back to graduate school to, to really shift career and, and to do something entirely different. I had worked in, in television, making wildlife documentaries for RT as a, as a TV producer. And I was really wanted to, to 
to do a real shift. And, and I was much more interested in the people and now the network mercenary in some ways about what I would invest my time in, in terms of what I was going to work at on my MBA. And I didn't really care about the grades. And it was just fascinating to be exposed to such a group of, of very competitive people who, uh, you know, were, were really hard workers, really wanted to be the best that they could be. And one of the things that I have to say you provided for, for me, you developed a reputation in the classes. You would always answer the first question. All of our lectures, most of them uh, were taught with the Socratic method. So it was very much, uh, very dynamic, very interactive classes. You would have to prepare these case studies. You always answered first. Uh, and it became like this, this thing that, that uh, JT would, would answer the question first. And, you know, that, that I actually learned a lot from you because what, what it, um, it was actually really smart because answering the first question got you off the hook for the rest of the lecture. Right. So you could have one good answer and you always remember going, well, that guy clearly did the work. So you, you could, you know, um, whereas I would hide up the back and go, well, hope he doesn't call on me today because I did, you know, I, to say I, I, I speed read the case study would be doing a charity to speed reading. <laughs> right. I have to say it was a very enjoyable year and we were fortunate doing it in, in you know, the MBA where we did it in that. It didn't cost as much as an MBA, an equivalent MBA program would cost here in the US. You know, when you leave graduate school and you're not encumbered by a massive amount of debt, it gives you such a competitive advantage, right, over a lot of your peers. Um, and I, you know, Philip and I moved to the United States pretty soon after, but like without a year after the MBA, we've been here since. Yeah, it's incredible. We guys have had such a, a fun journey as well. So as you mentioned, growing up in Ireland, and then you want to take this career transition. So you go back to the MBA program, like many of us did, looking for what's the next chapter. Share with us a little bit about that adventure that you did right after the MBA, because I think this is a great case study into, all right, I've got this degree, I want to do something different. What does that look like? How do I provide it for myself and for others? And so walk us through what you did right after the MBA, or even during the MBA, the idea you had. Yeah, a friend of mine from the, was in our class, John Lachlan, and I, it was John's idea originally, and he came to me, it was around Christmas time or just before Christmas of our MBA program, and he said, oh, you know, I've got this idea to start a, a, a business while we're here, and it was, it, we'd been doing this entrepreneurship class as an elective, and we started, just ourselves, we started being, getting interested in different types of entrepreneurship and how it was taught, and we had believed that you know, you can't really teach entrepreneurship. You're either entrepreneurial or you're not. And it was very black and white. And, and what we learned and discovered is that there's, that's true in some respects, but in a lot of respects, it's not. It's, it's, there's a formula that you can follow. There's, you know, for different areas of a business as you're building it. And, and so we came up with this idea of having this um, business plan competition. And that's where it started. And then we quickly evolved it to becoming uh, about, we modeled it on Eric Ries and the Lean Startup. We developed a, 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 like a judging criteria when we, we started inviting other MBA programs and schools uh, to attend this competition. Um, and it started to grow legs. And it really only started to grow legs, I, I want to say, towards the end of, of the MBA. And it was like myself and John, we'd met a lot of people along the way. And we, they, nobody really believed that we would pull it off because it just seemed like a crazy idea um, that we would have all of these top business schools sending teams and paying an entry fee to come stay in Dublin for three days to compete for 
this pride, we kind of sat down in one day and we said, look, you know, we have to start believing in it ourselves. We have to really just say, this is happening no matter what, we're going to do it. And it was an amazing transformation because as soon as we said that and we said, we're doing it on this date and that's, we're committing to it and that's it. People started to kind of buy into it and we started to slowly just add people to it. Once we got the first yes, we used that to get to the next person and then the next person. And the idea was these teams would come with a, with a business idea and uh, they would pitch to a panel of investors and they would uh, compete for a cash prize. And we had a, I think we had a total cash prize of 25,000 euros, um, which is what we gave out in cash, in a ca- an actual cash prize. It's a lot of money, right? We had to raise that from ourselves. People were saying no to us along the way, as, as has what happens. And we started to change the way, I can't remember who, who kind of told us this, but somebody told us to give us advice along the way to say, like, even if you get a no from somebody, turn your ask, be very like, clear about your ask when you go in. So if they're, if they're a no, that you're asking them, okay, so you're a no, so can you introduce me to this other person in your network? So you've got your research done. And that time, you know, I neither of us made any money from this venture. In fact, we lost money. But what I learned, it really set me up for everything in my career because it allowed us to see how businesses work. It allowed us to build a network of very interesting people. We got to got to have a lot of fun. We really did. We managed to, uh, I think, nag our way uh, onto Steve Blank's ranch in, uh, in near San Francisco. That was an amazing experience. And, we, you know, not, nobody, like, and particularly one of our lecturers, he didn't believe in us so much. He was our capstone lecturer. And he would say, you know, you guys are jokers. Like, you're not really serious. This is just, I don't know, you're either going to really pull it off and prove me wrong or you're just having me on. I can't, I can't get, I can't tell. So we got Steve Blank to sign a book, a, a copy of his book, The First Steps of the Stages of the Epiphany. We FedExed it from Palo Alto. We were on a meeting, we were on our way to a meeting in Stanford and we split in and we FedExed it back and, and it was the best hundred dollars we, uh, we ever spent. It was like, you know, it was just silly and, and, but it was a great, it was a great learning experience. So we ended up having 20 startups from around the world. We had, we had uh, teams from Peru, from Columbia University here in New York. We had NYU Stern, um, we had the top business school in Mexico. We had Arizona State, the Rotman School from the University of Toronto. We had a, a school from Madrid and six from Ireland. We had a really great, uh, and then there was Warwick University in the UK. We had a really interesting group of people come over to Ireland for three days. Then we realized that we had 50 speakers lined up and we had this three-day extravaganza is the only word I can think to describe it, right? There was panels. It was, it was just a real, and then we said, oh, we better actually have more people than 20 startups at this at this event and we had it in the Marker Hotel which hadn't opened at the time we were their first their first engagement their first corporate client when they opened this new hotel this new five-star hotel in Dublin and it was great great experience I wouldn't change uh, any of it at the end we had this big party in the Guinness Storehouse which is the Ireland's top tourist attraction and the rooftop bar we, we really went all out on, on stuff when I think back on it, it it was kind of insane really I wouldn't change it. It was a great experience. I remember at the end, we had the Minister for Education for Ireland giving out the prizes. Silicon Valley Bank were a sponsor. I remember standing in the Guinness storehouse giving you know, giving a speech. And the only thing that I was wearing that was mine in terms of clothes were my boxers and my socks and a, and a pair of shoes. Everything else I had to borrow from my brother because my clothes, I just, we just didn't, I didn't have anything that was nice to wear. I, I just always remember uh, that going right. So the only way is up from here, right? <laughs> well, and you said that was big moment in your professional development like even though that may not have been what pays the bills today that somehow helped you you build the foundation character professional skills lessons learned whatever it may be so what was it what was it that that you learned from that that helped catapult you over the next decade at the time i i was very i lacked a lot of belief in myself right and my abilities and i would always look at other people going how are they able to do that you know i'd always think that i 
you know, I, I wasn't good enough for it or I wasn't bright enough or smart enough. Throughout the NBA and, and doing this NBA World Trophy, as it was called, what I learned was if you put your mind to it, you can, you can really achieve a lot of things, right? You can't do everything. You can go a long, a long way. Another thing I learned as well is, is that people are incredibly generous with their time. They're generous with their time, I, I, I believe, for, for a couple of reasons. One of them is, is that, you know, you're offering them an opportunity to, to look good, potentially, right? Because you're putting them in a room with peers or with, uh, with other leaders and, and it, it, it's, you know, it's helpful for them. But also it's other people have helped them through in, in their career. So generally speaking, I've always found that, that um, people are incredibly generous with their time uh, and providing their time and providing input, insights, feedback. The, the challenge, of course, is, is when you're an entrepreneur and you're running a startup is you have to be very selective about who you're going to listen to. You know, you have to retain that single-minded sense of purpose. And a lot, I see a lot of entrepreneurs not stay through to that path. And it was, there was a moment when we were about a month before the event, there was a real, I, I believe, opportunity for us to say, right, we can we could go and build a business here. And what it, our idea at the time was like to do like a crowdsourced uh, uh, competition where everyone would put in this like, you know, $5 or $10 entry fee and you would crowdsource um, and crowd vote part of the, the winners and you would you would kind of pull the money together and then invest in, in startups. And, and the idea was that we would build like an angel investment fund out of it. There was a moment. There was a moment for a few weeks where we we tossed this around, and we we allowed ourselves to be talked out of it by by some people, um, and that that is a little bit of a regret because I do believe there was something there, but at the same time we were also you know a year out of our graduate schools with bills to pay and no real income coming in, and, and you know John actually at one point got me a job, a part time job, um, being a barman in the Gibson Hotel in Dublin. Now, I am the worst, the absolute worst server. I really am terrible. Like, I can't make any drinks. Like, I can't, I just, I'm just, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I have no time for people who are, are drunk. So it's like, you know, I, 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 so you've got this impatient, kind of angry person behind the bar, <laughs> you know, working these Christmas parties. You know, I don't, I don't want to be here, number one, but I, like, I can't even pretend it, you know, fake it enough to kind of get a tip or anything. It's just funny where you end up, right? And, and the things that you have to do to try and make ends meet or whatever. But you did that. You, you chased a dream, you did that. And then you mentioned about how you've discovered people are generous with their time. As you reflect back on your story, whether it's personal or professional, who are the people or what are those moments that really stand out to you of being you know, someone that provided for you? Yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a couple of very strong mentors who, and, and one of the things that, that I've keyed in on here and and Dan, you know, when I was thinking about what I was going to say today, and I keep coming back to the concept of time, it's our most valuable and often overlooked resource. You know, what we spend our time doing, we make choices all every day and, and we make compromises with our time. And, and a couple of people that stand out for me that have been so generous with their time and they didn't have to be, right? When somebody takes the time to explain something, like I, I've been in the last few years trying to model what I've learned, to recreate what I've learned from other people to try and you know, when I'm working with a team, try and make sure that I, I explain why I'm doing it. Take the time to, if somebody just understands something, to, to explain it and, and walk them through it. And what I've learned about myself is, is that that's the most valuable thing that I can offer other people and that I've learned from mentors. And there's one guy in particular that stands out for me. It was He was my boss at uh, Smart Pet Technologies. I spent just a little over two years working for the American Kennel Club as their director of content and then was promoted to be a director of marketing 
And at the time, I was I was then reporting to the interim CIO or CTO, a guy called Mike Bassone, who um, had been the president and CTO at Weight Watchers Online. So a very, very senior, seasoned executive, a brilliant, brilliant man, really, really one of the best leaders I've ever met. He then hired me to join this spin-out startup called Smart Pet Technologies. And for your listeners, it was a collar, smart dog collar that we made that tracked the dog's activity and location. It was talked to a, uh, tied to an, an app, uh, an Android and iPhone or iPhone app. Um, and we won the CES Best of Innovation Award. Um, we won a bunch of awards. We were the first pet technology, pet wearable device to win that award. And I would have learned a huge amount from him. And, and what I learned was that no matter what you went in with, uh, into his office with, whether it was at the American Kennel Club or at Smart Pet, he would always stop what he was doing and take time to explain something or to hear you. And he was very intentional about his listening. Like he, he would put something away and he would focus on you. It was quite incredible because it meant that he gave you his undivided attention. So the meeting would happen quite quickly. And you always left feeling empowered because he would always, you know, he wouldn't tell you what to do. He would just steer you in the in, in, in a direction or, or he would challenge what some of your assumptions. And it was it was a very, like, I, I learned an enormous amount from him. Like, it really did. And, and a very generous guy with his time. And I asked him once, um, well, why did he do it? Because it was like, it's a hard thing to do. When you're a CEO or, uh, um, you know, you don't get much time. Time is, is you lose time at everything. And, and But he would always invest in his people. And he said to me, you know, I had some great mentors when I was coming up. So I'm just paying it forward. It's like, this is the, these are the rules. I didn't make them up. And he was very, he's very humble about it. But it's just an amazing, amazingly generous man. And the other guy I have to say that, that um, is, is uh, he's on the board of the Smurfit Alumni Association here in the, Amer- in the United States, um, the North American board. And his name is Jim DeHayes. And I met him at, I want to say, an alumni event here years ago, like, you know, when I first moved here. And he invited me for breakfast the next day at the Harvard Club, the Harvard Alumni Club in New York. He just, you know, he was just, an inter- just interested in, in, in helping out alumni. And he made some introductions and, and he's kept in touch over the years. But he, anytime I meet him, he's just very uh, generous with his time and his advice. And he's able to give great advice because he advises CEOs, such as business, right? He advises, particularly in the insurance and, and health sector. But yeah, that, that, uh, I would have to come back to time. And, and that's one of my, my New Year's resolutions that I'm determined to keep this year, right? Is, is how can I be more intentional with my time? How can I put my device away and whoever I'm talking to that they're getting my undivided attention? That's hard to do because we're on Zoom all the time. That's great. It sounds like it was a big breakthrough for you as well to go from thinking of yourself as this small figure to someone worthy of someone's time as well. Maybe you learned that through the MBA and having to speak up and, and try to get on people's calendars just to start a business. And then you got to see the real genuine gift of when someone was not just giving you time on their calendar, but being so intentional with their time. Yeah, you're right. And, and at some level, there's always a, a sense, like for me anyway, I don't know if this is the same for, for other people, but for me, I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just one step away from being out of my depth or, or, or being found out or that I'm not, I'm not worthy of my place wherever I've been. You know, and, and I'm, I'm, my, I'm my, almost my hardest, my harshest critic in, 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 in a lot of ways. That, you know, when you're looking around, you're, I think it's a very Irish thing as well. I think Irish people generally... Um, we, we take a, uh, we can take a very glass half empty approach to some things. I don't know if you experienced that in Ireland. We don't like you know taking credit or, or being somebody publicly praising us. You know I, I still have difficulty when somebody says to me at work, 
um, you did a really good job where they public, I get public praise. I can, I, I find myself getting very uncomfortable, you know, it's going, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> please stop talking. <laughs> it's not about me, you know? And, and I, I've had people who've worked with me say, you know, you're so, it's just, just, just very, it's, it's, uh, it's so alien to American culture, right? That's been a good learning, you know, that you, you, you deserve and you've earned your stripes and you've earned your place wherever you are and, and you uh, deserve the opportunity that you're getting. That's a, that's a new, a relatively new thing for me. And it's something that open, it opens up because now I want to help other people who are on my team or, or who I work with or, you know, and, and I think, you know, you and I spoke back when I was about to have my, my daughter four and a half years ago. And you gave me some advice, some great advice about parenting. You know, one of the things was, was to write down, to keep a journal and write it all down because you would, you would forget because like, everything happens so quickly and you forget the, these moments, you know, and I did it for my daughter and, and I always think back and I found it when we were, you know, a few months ago, I was reading it again and it really takes you back and um, I really appreciate that. And I've learned a lot from, from you that like, you're very generous with your, your time as well and, and you also are very non-judgmental. Like I have to say, when we were in the NBA, I picked up very early that you were very uncomfortable with profanity and living in Ireland, right? Nobody has experienced it. Irish people use a lot of profanity. It's like in every sentence, there's a swear word. And it's just, it's, it kind of, you know, it reaches kind of comical levels sometimes because when, you know, when I go back to Ireland, I, I get re exposed to it with my friends and even some of my family. And you go, you realize going, this doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It really doesn't. Where, you know, every fourth or fifth word, in some scenarios will be a swear word. But me, and, and I think it was John who locked and picked up very early that you were uncomfortable with, and you would never say anything, you know, but you, you almost would wince. And the two of us started a little game to see, could we get you to, could we break you? Could we, <laughs> could we how many words could we, like, could we make Justin be really uncomfortable? <laughs> like we're such, we're so acting so childish, such childish behavior, really, right? <laughs> So that's the kind of silliness that happens in Ireland a lot, I think. Oh, that's great. And it was all of great fun, too. Here we are trying to change careers, but still have a good time with it. <laughs> it's so fun to throw yourself in the deep end and to try something new, like framing myself. Like, that was the deep end. We didn't. We had no idea. We didn't know anyone in Ireland. And it was so nice to have some welcoming friends as you and Philip a word to us to make us feel at home and to do fun activities with it. And so now, hey, you are, you've moved up in your career. You've relocated to the the city, uh, New York City, and you're raising a family. And so let us know, how are you being intentional with those in your life today? And how are you trying to provide for, for them? I'm curious, what, is, what does it look like in your world? As men, right, we're, we're hardwired to, to think of ourselves as the financial providers or the, you know, the, the providers for our families. And, and when there's two people, as there is in, our, in my family, um, where we both work, right? And, and my wife has the, the, the potential realistic, realistically over the rest of her career to earn you know, a multiple of what I've earned in my career. And it's really primal, isn't it? It's really, really rooted. When you think about it, it's really rooted into our psyche that we have to provide and we have to stoically provide almost. So we have to be, be these, this kind of quiet, dependable, dependable reliable type who's, you know, who can, uh, who's there, you know, to, to catch things when they fall, you know, to do this delicate juggling act all the time, or at least that was the construct that I had in my head, right? And, you know, having children, you you, you have to re-examine all of that, I think, uh, or I've had at least um, to do to re-examine it all and, and to think, 
well, you know, what kind of kids do I want to raise? You know, what do I want them to believe in? Um, or what would I like them to believe in? What would I like them, uh, how would I like them to behave in the world? What is it about my upbringing that I like that I want to carry forward? And what is it about my upbringing that I didn't know like that I, I'm not going to bring forward, right? And Because we, we're, all, we're all products of our upbringing our, our, and our environments. I think that's one of the, one of the things that I, I, I am determined to get better at is, is having, you know, making time for my kids, intentional time, making time for my wife, making time for family and friends. And, and it's, it's, uh, New York is so fast-paced and frenetic, even in a, in a pandemic. There's still, you feel like I have to run everywhere. You know, I have to, I have to be doing everything at breakneck speed. It's very difficult, or at least I found it very difficult in New York to put to one side this kind of constant nagging fear that you're missing out on something. But now for the last kind of year, I don't, I'd say, no, I'm not, we're not, I'm not missing anything. I'm living the life that I'm supposed to live. You know, I'm with the people that I'm supposed to be with. I, I, I wouldn't change that. I, I'm, I'm not missing an opportunity by doing the work that I do now you know, a deliberate choice to have more time for family. It's okay for, you know, in, 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 a, in a partnership like any marriage or any kind of, you know, whether you're married or not with, with a significant other, as you go through life, there are, there are kind of, you know, there are highs and lows and, and there are some people who will be one side of the partnership might be doing more, earning more at different times. But I, I think, you know, everyone ends up in the same place, right? We all end up six feet in the ground looking up you know, and we can't take it with us, right? So no matter how much money you earn or the job that you do, ultimately you're going to be measured at the end, I think, by your relationships, right? The relationships, relationships that you've had that you've nurtured. Um, and that's something that I, I'm determined to do a, lot, a better job at. In the past, I've been less so in the last year or so, but I, before that I was really focused on career and, and, you know, I would spend so much time working that I didn't really have any hobbies, and I'm trying to, to change that because I remember one of my colleagues at the American Kennel Club saying to me at a, at a social kind of lunch thing that we that that there was put on. I'm like, what what do you like? What do you do for fun? You, you just seem to work all the time, and I, and it stuck with me because you know she was right. It's like I just do work all the did work all the time, and and I felt like oh this is what I have to do to prove myself because we've moved from this different country, which is start we're starting from scratch. We're starting from a baseline with we don't know anyone here as an immigrant i have to work twice as hard or three times as hard as anyone else just to kind of prove my worth that's not the case right and nobody's ever made me feel that that that's just an internal thing the pressure that you put on yourself yeah i'm I'm thinking a lot about time at the moment it's a great theme well and what happened a year ago when you made that conscious decision to say you know i'm willing to say no to some of these whether it's uh networking uh not missing out opportunities it's probably more than a year ago now. Is my 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 son was born sixteen months ago. I came back from parental leave, and the day we, the day I arrived back, the company I was with, the CEO called an all hands meeting, and there was like some stick. So start a very early stage startup, and before I left on parental leave, you know, we were gung ho raising is going to raise the Series A. CEO wanted to raise, and it was like six or eight million dollars, and we were really it was like a, it was called property, and it was a, a really um, it was in selling your home entirely online, and I was the head of marketing and. Right back, first day back from parental leave, feeling like, okay, we're going to hit it hard now for the rest of the year. Really going to raise the Series A and then it's on to the next thing. Ten cities next year, we're going to take over the world. And and called us in and he said, look, you know, um, I've decided to fold the company. I'm not raising the Series A. Um, just don't want to do it anymore. I'm, I'm just I'm just done. I'm a bit burnt out and just not feeling. And like, it was very uh, sad. Um, 
he'd lost both his parents or he'd lost his mum suddenly a year a year ago, a year previous to that, and, and his dad was in palliative care. And anyway, he was an only child. It was just a, like a very tough situation personally for him, and, and I really felt for the felt for him. But at the same time, then then you're scrambling, going, well, what am I going to do now? How am I going to do it? What do I want to do? I'd done a few startups. When you're at working for venture back startups, the best way to describe it is that it, it, it's it's a real thrill. So it's, it's you know everything's new all it's it's all new all the time. You're building you, you know new stuff all the time. You're trying to figure out what works, and as a marketer, you're trying to you know, always drive your cost of acquisition down. So you're, you're, all, you're all the time kind of thinking about these things and thinking about the idea of building a brand. And you're just in this kind of head down running really fast and you always feel like you're behind. There's never a moment in a startup where you feel like, yeah, you know, I, I really accomplished a lot today. Because, you know, as soon as you think that, you just get punched in the face going, oh yeah, you thought that? <laughs> well, let me tell you this, right? <laughs> You know, then I really started to think about, well, what do we want to do for the next couple of years? Like, we've got a, a baby boy at home. I remember with Dan and our daughter, I didn't really, apart from weekends, I didn't really see her, you know, because I would leave at like six in the morning, get on a train, a bus on a train to Stamford, Connecticut from New York. as soon as reverse commute. So like our, my commute to the office was about two and a half hours each way. Five hours out of every day, did it for nearly for over three years. And I was going, I don't want to do that again for the next one. And at the time, Philip was starting an internship at Mount Sinai. She was coming to a stage where she needed more from me, right? I, I, you know, I needed to, to change the way I was doing things. And that, that, like, that required a big mental shift for me. And it took me a long time to, to, to make my peace with it. It really did. It took me about, I want to say, eight or nine months. Even though I made the decision, it was the right decision for the family. But I, I, in my head, I, I really struggled with it. I really struggled with it because it was like, you know, am I giving up my career? Am I taking this sideways step? Am I I'm never going to be getting, I'm never going to get back on the path that I was on. You know, I'm, I'm going to miss, I'm missing out on all these opportunities. And no, the reality is, is that I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a path that's the best for my family. And I'm still learning a lot. And I can always go back and do it again if I want to. And now that I have a bit of perspective and distance from it, I don't want to go back to do it. You know, I remember, um, and I was, I was interviewing, and I remember getting to the final stage with interviewing for this. Uh, this is after I was let go. I was, I was interviewing this this uh, financial app, fintech app, something sort of, like there, there's, there's loads of them around, right? They'd gotten a really nice growth. They've, they'd earned, like they'd had a million users on their app, and they um, were going out to raise their Series B. They wanted a VP of growth or whatever to come in, and I was talking to the C, the, the CEO was a Stanford MBA or some other nonsense and you know I was having these conversations with the same kinds of people right and entrepreneurs we, we've, we've got all this growth from Facebook and we need to find we need to find a channel that can replicate Facebook so back in how was it 2000 and maybe it was 19 when Facebook changed their uh, they had a, a connection with the data privacy or the data brokers so Facebook was given all this great growth because you could really hyper target you know and you were given all this really efficient growth so these guys have built this app uh, earn like raise money basically from from Facebook, right? They just use this this Facebook system. I was, I said to them, I was interviewing. I said, look, you know, there's no you know, there's no them. There's nothing like Facebook. Facebook was a phenomenon it, it, on that that has never been replicated and will never be replicated again. I started finding myself almost seeing the future, seeing what would happen. You kind of got lucky, right? The founder, the founders, they got lucky with Facebook. They have this app that's not really sticky. It's just a product that. To do something a little bit differently than anyone else, that's not, not defensible. They want to raise another twenty million. They need to show this all of this growth. 
this this hyper growth and and they have no way to do it other than to spend money on marketing. They know what they want to spend money on marketing, but they're going to begrudgingly spend it because they got Facebook giving them you know customers for free basically. So I found myself arguing with the guy on on the uh, uh, during the interview, and and I, I just stopped myself saying, well, you know, I know you've got an MBA from Stanford, but you're really kind of dumb, you know, like that you're so blinkered about this that you're not like. And, and I stopped myself as going, this is not for you, right? This is isn't, and and. So do something different. That has been a journey for the last year. And, and I think, uh, ironically, you know, COVID has helped because, you know, we, we've we spent a lot of time together as a family. We've kind of figured out we want to do some new things, some different things. And, and now I have a real uh, desire to start something myself. I, I'm, I'm very keen to start my own company in the next kind of few years, you know. I'll do it slightly differently than the, the previous occasion. As I think I'll, um, and I know I'll have like, you know, savings set aside. So I'm not, it's, it's, you know, I'll be mitigating the risk and all of that. Oh, that's exciting. Well, I can't wait. That'll be round two of the podcast interview with Stephen Smith is the launch of whatever that future business is and taking the lessons learned of time and relationships and how you build upon that. So I'm so thankful that our paths have crossed. I'm so thankful that we both took that leap of faith to stop our careers and go back to the MBA to connect with one another, to have some fun adventures and to keep in touch throughout the course of our lives afterwards. I'm very grateful. I'm glad that I had a chance to share a little bit about your story. Is there any other parting words of encouragement or lessons learned that I did not give you a chance to reflect on that you wanted to share? I, I would say to really focus on celebrating the differences between your colleagues for us to, to be uh, less partisan right in, in our approach to, to everything and I don't just mean in politics it, I've noticed it bleed over into 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 everything we're, we're so polarized about you know even the coffee that we drank right it, it, it can can cause an argument in some context so it's, and that's what I, I've been more focused on is is you know you and I have some things in common we have the MBA in common you know we have a lot of things that we, that we don't have in common and, and I, I, I would be I would be confident that, you know, some of my life choices wouldn't jive with some of, you know, with the way you like to live your life and, and, and vice versa. But, you know, I, I, I respect, I uh, have a lot of respect for, for how open you've been to new experiences and you, you always have a kind word, you know, for, for people. Um, and that's something that I could do a better job at. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before you take off, I wanted to ask if you would enjoy getting a short email from me every Wednesday called A Kind Word. It provides a little positivity to help you get over hump day. It's free and shares highlights of things that have brought me joy over the past week. If you want to start getting a kind word from me, simply sign up at justinthomascoaching.com by entering your email address and you'll get the next one. That's justinthomascoaching.com. Thanks again for listening. Bless and protect.